Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Backer. We are the podcast about music and capitalism. And today we got an interview for you, this time with writer, journalist, Eamon Ford. Eamon and I will be discussing his recent article for The Guardian on the 20-year anniversary of the iPod and how the launch of the iPod can be seen as this watershed moment for uh for where we are today and a whole hell of a lot of what we talk about here on Money for Nothing. Uh, Ford has been writing about music and technology for the better part of the last 20 years, and he was a very lively and insightful interview that I'm sure you'll enjoy. But before we bring you the interview, Sam and I wanted to discuss something topical, which is unusual for us. We like we like to not necessarily give hot takes, but let things simmer and examine them a little bit in true money-for-nothing fashion. And unfortunately, the topic we'll be discussing is quite tragic, and that's the events that happened this past weekend in Houston at the Travis Scott Astroworld concert, where eight concertgoers lost their lives due to what's being reported as overcrowding and a sort of mass rush push to the stage during Scott's set. Thoughts go out. To, to everyone, the families and to anyone who's injured at the show and everyone in just the music community in general, this is an absolute tragedy. And it's like heart, absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. When you, when you go to some, you know, you like, like music is like definitely an escape. And when like something horrifically tragic like this happens, it, you know, it, it makes it even sort of almost worse in a sense, just because this is like one of the few things that kind of brings us happiness and joy in the world. And yeah, and it's all, and they were, yeah, and, and, you know, you just like, look, there are all these kids, you know, they're like 20, 16, some of them saved up like, like for, you know, weeks or months, travel from out of town to go see the show. I mean, look, we're, we're going to do a full episode about this in a little while, I think, once we have some more facts, once we have some more information, once we can kind of put it in the context that something like this deserves, you know, I, I don't, I think there's a, t- a tremendous amount of like jumping to conclusions. Like, I don't think we know very much yet off kind of my gut reaction. And I think Saxon and I, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, like, for one, I think that there's a, a, an impulse in the American media to like blame the wildness of youth, and especially when that's allied to black musical forms, to blame like the wildness and like kids and like how dangerous this music is. And so, like, anytime something like this happens, my like gut level reaction is to look for that take and be like, that's probably not true because it's very rarely true. You know, previous events like this happened at Pearl Jam concerts, happened at concerts by the who i mean it's it's not i don't know if there's like an aesthetic through line between travis scott and pearl jam that could explain these kind of events but yeah that has that has been the media narrative i mean you know one quick search of the new york times and you have an article by joe coscarelli who i respect as a journalist but you know the the title is before the Asheville tragedy travis scott's quote raging made him a star and it goes into this history, and of course, there's a lot of, you know, buts in the uh, in the uh, in the article. So you know, but Mr. Scott's attempt to balance a kind of community-based catharsis with the powder keg of a rambunctious young crowd, which has led to ac- accusations that he has incited fans and encouraged unsafe behavior. It's not so much that I'm interested in like what the media is saying generally. It's like this take is doing damage in the present right now. A narrative is being solidified, like created and solidified before our eyes that is functioning in this crazy way based on like, uh, it's it's like it's like slipping, right? People will be like, the, the tragedy is based on crowd crushing, but previous things about Travis Scott, and then we're going to talk about that. And it's like, but now reading it, even though there no one's drawing a direct line, but like between Travis Scott talking to a kid in a balcony and a massive push of people, 50,000 or more people, like because of the basic design of the concert, like there aren't balconies. He's not playing Terminal 5 anymore. This is a huge festival. This is a different thing. He didn't design the festival and whether or not he like did or didn't do the optimal thing in this situation. The point is that Travis Scott did not put on this concert. Live Nation put on this concert. Live Nation is a multi-billion dollar 
business that operates across the entire world whose sole purpose is putting on events to get people in safely and out safely. And I do not see any world in which any of the blame really fundamentally can fall on the artists because the artists aren't the ones who are organizing it. Live Nation's entire responsibility is working with artists to put on these things safely. And I don't see how ultimately that's not where the buck stops here. And I've been shocked at how little anger and how little discussion there has been about what seems to be the total complicity of this incredibly profitable company. A profitable company that, by the way, has legal li- uh, like legal legal waivers in most of the tickets they sold. And I bet dollars to donuts they're going to try to invoke those to make sure they don't get sued by everyone who was injured at this concert. I don't see it's not how it's not their fault ultimately, and and, and I'm going to be really interested in like watching that story unfold, and I I think that's that's uh, something that we should all pay attention to. It, it, you know, an, an interesting sort of alternative point in reading all these articles and headlines that are either like laying blame at the feet of Travis Scott and his wild festivals or his wild concerts, and or at least noting as noting it as a reason why these things could happen and then did happen in Houston is that if you have an artist that puts on a wild rambunctious show wouldn't that then make you want to handle security and make sure the crowd control situation is all that much better and safer and also there's another another indicator that maybe extra precautions should have been made is that like just last month even less than a month ago a Playboy Cardi concert at the same venue was canceled last minute because of crowd control issues. <laughs> so it's like all of the red flags are there. And it's like, is it really the fact that like Travis Scott throws a wild, seemingly awesome concert? Or is it rather just like these systems breaking down and these large corporations choosing profit over safety? And, you know, the, the, people, the, the, company, the company that was a head of security is a company, a vague company called Contemporary Services Corporation. And they do a lot of these concerts like down here in the South. And they were hired to handle the, the security, security for this concert. And they were hired by Live Nation. So already you have like a chain of communication breaking down where you have Live Nation, even though they have billions of dollars, <laughs> choosing to go with a third party, which I'm sure was the most affordable. <laughs> no, 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 and like there's clearly like a lot more, there's going to be a lot more to this story, right? This is like, this has to do with uh, total reliance of the music industry on live touring, specifically on like the, the, the importance of experience and the way that you can get like higher valuations on experiences. So like festivals that are all immersive. This is about, I assume, <laughs> regulations. Like maybe this could have happened in any state, but it doesn't surprise me that it's more like it's it seems like off the gut it's more likely to happen in a place like Texas than like like those are not union no one there was union right no and, and like you know this is about this is also going to be about like like the story ultimately is going to be about like the implications of this right does this destroy Travis Scott's career does this make it harder to book rap does this change how people think about festivals does this change how this, you know, is this used as, as a cudgel to, to, to vilify like a, a broader aesthetic movement? And this is the stuff that we can only figure out in, in the long term. But like, there's no way it's it's as simple as this narrative that like we're seeing, like I said, like seeing taking hold that that seems damaging, like actively damaging. So I think we made our point and we'll be talking, discussing this more. But um, now you'll be hearing my great interview with Eamon Ford journalist who writes about music and technology and his recent article for the guardian talking about talking about the 20 year anniversary of the ipod enjoy Guardian is on the iPod. Yeah, it's been 20 years 
since it was launched by Apple and the music industry, I think it's fair to say has uh, changed quite dramatically and rapidly since then. Yes, yes, it has. <laughs> Certainly, yeah, it kind of came about at a time when um, digital was the most niche thing in the in the record business. I think it's there's been a bit of kind of Stalinistic rewriting of history, which was, oh, they weren't doing anything. They were like, oh, they were completely unaware. And then you look back at what they were doing in the 90s and there were experiments with artists like Bowie and like Duran Duran and Aerosmith to do tracks. And they were doing stuff, but it was like the digital people were certainly further down the agenda than they are now. Basically, the, the entire business is now digital. So it's kind of interesting in 20 years that this business has completely flipped. These The area that was kind of seen as uh, niche was uh, the thing that A, got the industry into trouble and then B, pulled the industry out of trouble. So there's a kind of, it's a very bittersweet relationship I think the record industry has with digital. It's really interesting because, I mean, you, you frame the article about being like, oh, um, the record industry was like blaming file sharing and Napster. But obviously it's like a little bit more complex than that because as you just yeah. mentioned, like they knew that yeah. this that this digital music change was, was, was on the horizon. Yeah. Well, it was kind of interesting when I spoke to Hilary Rosen, who was running RIAA, which was effectively the trade body for uh, record companies in America at the time. Uh, she said that the kind of the record industry was seen as a bit of a, a laughing stock in Silicon Valley, that no one really took it seriously. Or certainly it was tied up into this idea of copyright being a bad thing. And obviously the, the entire music industry runs on copyright and they wanted to protect copyrights. They've obviously got a vested interest. And she said that it was Apple was the only company that really took it seriously because I guess there was this whole kind of probably what what became later known as the kind of the copy left movement kind of had a lot of its origins in uh, Silicon Valley, which is obviously um, ironic considering how protective of their own interest companies like Google and everybody who came in their wake are. So it was like, it was almost like the, the last page of Animal Farm about our copyrights and our IP is important, but yours isn't. Uh, certainly that was the sense that the, the record industry had, that they were just seen as this archaic kind of stick in the mud, really. They're just kind of going, this digital revolution's happening. You guys are the Luddites. You're the machine breakers trying to stop this thing happening. And Hilary Rosen said it was really interesting that Steve Jobs, who was a massive music fan, was pro the music industry getting paid. Now, there is an argument within that about how much the record industry got paid when you went to the unbundling of the CD, the lucrative CD market, into this a la carte 99-cent iTunes market that uh, the the iPod was one of the catalysts for. But they, they definitely felt that Apple was one of the few companies that understood their need to be paid and respected their need to be paid, which is a really important thing. Obviously not to the extent that they were going to give them, a sh uh, uh, introduce a blank media levy onto the iPod, which is kind of what happened with um, the Rio, the Diamond Rio, was basically got sued inside out by the RIAA because they wanted what, what they call a blank media levy. And it applies to things like, it used to apply to CDRs. It also applies to photocopiers, which is that there's effectively a royalty um, tied up with the CDRs of all the hardware which then is carved up among affected copyright owners so like newspapers and magazines would have got a cut of and book publishers would have got a cut from photocopier sales that still applies in markets like germany but it's kind of it's fallen by the wayside now but they want to that that was the thing that kind of sunk the diamond rio was they said we need a levy applied on this device and they'd gone through that they found it was really painful the judges ruled against them so then by the time apple came along with the ipod the rio had taken all the legal heat out and things had moved on a bit and the industry realized litigation was not necessarily the best route you've got to work with these people rather than kind of uh throw rocks at them so kind of the timing of the ipod was quite interesting it was almost like if we want to be biblical about it it was like the jesus to uh the diamond rios john the baptist john the baptist and and if your bible studies are good you know that john the baptist had his head chopped off although jesus got crucified so neither of them ended up with it that's a really bad biblical analogy but anyway but you know, it's interesting though because like hillary's hillary uh hillary rosen's uh um criticism i think you know i think it's, there's a little bit fair though because 
you know, they like to spin this narrative. The the record, the major major labels, the record industry like to spin this narrative that like it was oh Napster that was like taking them down. But really, I mean, they were a little bit high on their own supply, and like they were having oh, trouble yeah. producing like another Michael Jackson or like another Madonna. And then they're trying to sell me like the Baja Men CD for twenty dollars if I just want to hear one song. On yeah, it. well, kind of uh, as the iPod kind of came to life, kind of nineteen ninety nine two thousand was the absolute apex for. Uh, the global record business. So IFPOE is kind of the international version of the RIAA and it collates all the global sales. And it was like the record industry just couldn't stop making money. It was just this machine that was spitting out money. And and that there is an argument within that that it was kind of drunk on its own arrogance. It just thought we are the greatest, we are the kingmakers, and we are we just can't make money faster now it's incredible and they thought that the good times would never end and then the, the good times very quickly and obviously napster came along it is a it is a bit of a myth to say that napster completely destroyed the industry but it changed a lot of priorities and it made the industry aware of its own mortality i think which was a really humbling thing and if you've got an industry that is fueled entirely by arrogance or perhaps some kind of substances that can amplify arrogance I will. I will let your listeners uh, decide what what I mean by that. But you've got the music industry, and the same thing happened a couple of years later to Hollywood, where it said, "Ha ha, screw the music industry. They're stupid. We're not going to get caught out like that. They are. Oh, we just did it again." And the TV industry, and the book industry, and the magazine industry, they all kind of felt the music industry was the first one really to go be put in the grinder. And everyone else kind of thought, oh, well, well let, the, let those guys take the pain and we won't uh, suffer. And they all did. They all made the exact same mistakes. So it wasn't like they didn't have a roadmap in front of them, a roadmap of mistakes to avoid. They all did it because these were arrogant companies. And the same thing can be applied to companies like Facebook and Google and TikTok and everybody else. These are companies that get big, and it's that arrogance and that that belief in the, the centrality of what they're doing is what makes them big. But it's also the, that hubris is the thing that will kind of uh, cause their downfall as well. It's like it's like that old Marxist notion of every revolution sows the seeds of its own destruction, and that that's applied. Obviously, Marx was not uh, in in favor of kind of these trans global or transnational corporations like a Facebook or whatever. But that logic is there the same that like you you start a revolution, and what you're actually doing is starting the seeds of the revolution that will pull you down. And the record industry suffered that. We'll see it with um, Facebook and Google and everyone else because you can't be that preeminent forever. Yeah, no, the, and there's this interesting thing I kind of want to go back to about how you said that. You know, it was really Steve Jobs who, uh, I guess, like was for them making money, because. Yeah. But but it's interesting because like it must have been something about the approach because they knew, like there's there's like if you look at the history, I mean they were meeting with Napster, these like labels, yeah. like, meeting with Napster, like and trying to work out a deal to see if they can go ahead and like you know make it legal and also like you know extract some money from it, and they basically scuttled those talks, and then they yeah. went and tried to like start their as you mentioned in your article, they tried to go start their own streaming services which like didn't really work and so it must have been something about the way i mean what do you think the way that in which like jobs was able to like kind of approach that well jobs knew that it was an industry on the back foot it knew that it was struggling it knew it needed guidance because this was a an industry that was that I kind of controlled like that old Jack Warner thing about on the means production, distribution and exhibition. And and the record industry did. They can control the whole process. Then two things come along. The internet, which is a means of distribution, which they did not develop and could not control. And the MP3, which was the first music format to hit a mass audience that was not developed by the music industry or by record companies. So suddenly you've got this industry slightly out of its depth. Steve Jobs comes along and he kind of sees an opportunity. He sees, okay, I can help this industry, but I can also benefit enormously from this industry. So there was a, a degree of kind of parasitical behavior by Apple kind of seeing that. But also they need a, a third party to come along and develop 
um, a licensed music service. Obviously, things like Rhapsody were kind of around at the time and, and eMusic was around at the time, but it was still very niche. I think eMusic was primarily independent content at the time. What do you make of that? What do you make of that argument? Because it's really interesting now if you look at Spotify, where basically like, you know, the the th- basically major three labels have kind of come together and kind of agreed to go ahead and uh, license all their music to Spotify because they realize like that's the well they well they also got equity in Spotify which is another huge another huge incentive but I think just purely for monopoly issues the the major labels when they set up press playing music now had to divide into two camps and I think EMI was able to cross that was back when there were five major imagine five major record companies wow. <laughs> at, at a very healthy independent scene that controlled about twenty percent of the market can you imagine something like that now you've got this kind of insane duopoly with sony and and universal and then warner kind of coming in third but uh yeah they need it they need an external company be to uh break through all of the, the license and monopoly concerns because they weren't press playing music now were terrible services to begin with because they, they, they were designed by people who were not software designers but also the licensing side of things was really was uh working against them because of they weren't allowed to cross license for a period and you've got this whole thing where you've got Napster and LimeWire and Natala and Audio Galaxy and everything else is kind of out in the wild at this point. And they've got everything. They've got stuff that the record companies haven't even released. They they were they they were like boasting of having a hundred million songs or whatever. And even now Spotify's only got like 70 million. So there was like a whole load of stuff like bootlegs, B-side stuff that's never been released before. And you can't compete where you go. You can't expect the consumer to come on and go, well, okay, I want Beyonce, but that means that I'm not allowed the Beatles because that's on a different... I don't understand why. Why it's that? So they needed someone like Apple to come along and kind of break that deadlock. And then obviously loads of third parties like like Spotify came along and, and benefited from, from that as well. Because... If if the whole point about digital is if it removes barriers of access is immediate and access is infinite, if you've only got a partial offering online, there's no point. You're you're competing in a marathon uh, with uh, trying to run backwards on your knees. Effectively, is what you're doing. So iTunes began as a bit of software just for ripping your CD collection. And no one knew, where's this going? And then later that year, they launched the iPod. So the whole point is, all right, you can sideload. And then it took them two years to launch the iTunes store. Obviously, they had to go through negotiations. The the record companies were really hesitant. They said, okay, this is going to be a Mac-only kind of offering to begin with and to, to, to test the market. And the Mac at that point was only 5% of the home PC market. So they just thought, okay, we can take an experiment. And then they very quickly showed that people would pay for music if you do it in an affordable and nice environment. And and the iPod was this kind of bit of bridge and technology between the old world of the CD, so iTunes as a software, uh, uh, sorry, a CD ripping software, and uh, then into actually paying for music online. So, and I think also what what's important about the iPod as well is that almost it gave the intangible a tangible form because digital files you can't see them. You can see you can see a little icon that takes up a bit of space in your hard drive, but you can't actually hold a physical file, a digital file, but the the iPod gave a, a, the same kind of sense of fulfillment you get from holding a LP or holding a cassette or whatever. It kind of feeds that sense of ownership into the purchaser. But they go, okay, okay, right, okay. I can't imagine there's these strings of ones and zeros, and it's kind of it's quite abstract. But here they are all contained in a tiny little thing, size of a deck of cards, which was Jobs' big selling point when he uh, unveiled the thing. It's got like, it fits in your pocket. It's a thousand songs in your pocket was their selling thing. And you go, okay, you've given the intangible a tangible form. And I think subconsciously that was really, really important what uh, the iPod and other MP3 players, which I think it's also, it, it's, it's really important to stress that Apple never invents a category. Apple perfects a category and and, mains, and takes it into the mainstream. And that's what they did with CD ripping. That's what they did with 
the iPod. That's what they did with downloads. They're obviously not, they're playing second fiddle to Spotify in terms of subscription streaming at the moment. But they have they know how to to fine tune a good idea to make it palatable to a mainstream audience. Obviously, it kind of changed everything, and it really kind of I think if you look at our listening habits now. And the idea of like the sort of way that the sort of capital A album has sort of uh, maybe taken a back seat to like the idea of like singles and playlists, you know, I think that really kind of can root back to uh, the iPod. And I guess also like, you know, the iPod is like, you know, the iPhones and the, yeah. you know, iPads are just reconfigured versions of the iPod in a way. But also I love this idea you talk about, about like giving the intangible tangible. Cause I mean, you know, you mentioned Marx and you go back to that, you know, mm-hmm. that famous quote, you know, all that is solid is truly melted into thin air. And I mean, that's really yeah. the case with this. Right. But what's so interesting also about that, I, that I got out of your article was the fact that, that jobs was the one to sort of put like a price on what a song is worth. Yeah. That, you know? that and, like, what... or a digital, a digital file is worth, which I find is really interesting. So I don't know if you maybe you can kind of touch upon some of those things, just like the way it kind of changed the culture and changed our listenership, but also like how it kind of, this very as you ephemeral commodity in yeah. the form of a digital music file suddenly is like puts he puts like 99 cent stamp on it yeah well i, th- I think what what digital did what napster did first or, or sorry what the mp3 did first was it was almost a, like a throwback to the 1950s which was a singles driven recorded music industry market the album was a kind of confection cooked up by columbia as a way of just repurposing singles so everybody bought singles and that's how you consume music and it was the it was kind of this revolutionary democratic teenage format because you could pay for it out of your pocket money everything was affordable you could get the hot new single of that week and then you do the exact same next week like the rise of youth single. culture like in post war yeah, yeah absolutely so all of these all of these worlds are are kind of being interlinked so people have this very romantic idea of the album and it's really only the, the kind of the glory era of the album is kind of the mid sixties to the mid nineties, and what happened was that it the art adapted to the format. So you had people conceiving these kind of bodies of work that ran to I think an album probably holds about forty five minutes split across both sides, rough something like that, and then the terrible thing of the CD came along, not terrible, I like CDs, but the CD came along with a runtime of, of, of about 74 minutes. And the artists then had to feel that they had to adapt to that format and they were overreaching themselves because you're effectively putting out two albums worth of material in, in old money on a CD. And the problem here was that quantity was triumphing over quality i think with the cd market i think you had people you had terrible albums being held up by a couple of songs obviously you can look back to the 60s and there's lots and lots of terrible albums held up by uh, a couple of songs but in you also have to remember in the 60s that singles didn't always appear on albums singles like you look at like what the beatles did or i don't know what Bob Dylan or whoever was doing it, or the Kinks are a great example of that. They had like these two worlds. You had like what they were doing with their singles and then what they were doing with their albums. And they very, very rarely crossed over. But the problem is that the the CD changed the the artistic demands on, on artists. And with that, you're kind of being stretched to... Um, it just became flabby, and you can. There's a there's an argument that you can see that happening now with uh, the Netflixization of of TV drama, which is okay. It used to be a series was twelve episodes, and they were tight, and they were fifty minutes. And now Netflix goes, well, you don't have to have. 12 episodes you could have 23 and some could be 50 minutes and some could be 75 minutes and the problem is that they're kind of breaking the format and in doing that there is a huge level of indulgence and i think the the mp3 was a reaction almost a kind of punk rock reaction if you want to be uh crass about it to the kind of the bloated nature that the album had become and they said let's get back to basics if you look at what punk rock was trying to do obviously there's two strains american punk rock and british punk rock but effectively they were all looking back to the 50s and the early 60s so kind of the kind of the peak of rock and roll and then into kind of post beatles garage bands or garage bands if i'm going to put on an american accent and 
And the MP3 and digital was a bit of a reaction against that. It just got like, as, as rocks out, beautifully, beautifully pitted. Don't bore us, get to the chorus. And it's almost like the MP3 was just going, okay, everything else is superfluous. It's the three minutes of the, the pop single or this kind of dopamine hit off a really great single. You don't need to sit through this noodly thing that the bass player wrote uh, that's, that's track six. And it, and it got rid of all of that indulgence, I think, which I think is f- to the benefit. I think lots of artists hate the idea that their art can be boiled down to three minutes because they've got grander visions for what it is. And sometimes artists do fulfill that. You will get great artists who kind of understand the concept of the album and, and build in this body of work. But that's a very, very rare thing. Most albums are boring. Like most TV film, TV series are too long and too boring. Most films are too long and too boring. But the MP3 was just going, right, okay, this is back to the seven-inch single. This is back to the 45 RPM. Three minutes, state your case, and then clear off. And I think that was quite a revolutionary thing. Obviously, you when you're trying to build a commercial model around that, that's when things become unstuck. The listener absolutely benefits from that just go okay i don't have to wade through these terrible songs that that wouldn't even have made it onto a b-side i can get to the actual stuff but the artists are going right but how do i make money we used to be able to sell this cd for 18 dollars, and now people can just hear the one good song for 99 cents economically that doesn't make sense to us well, so this is really interesting because um you're looking at it as a sort of like throwback to sort of like almost like the early sort of single days of the 50s, right? And and I think that I want I'm curious if you see this sort of a connection between some of the arguments that you hear today about the lack of like streaming payouts because I think that the one sort of yeah. existential question that doesn't get asked is like how does one even go about determining the price of now a cloud-based on-demand stream essentially? Yeah. And it, and it's and it's interesting because cuz you know obviously I like we're very like pro obviously paying the artist mm. out more, you know, of course, right? But in a weird way, there is like that sort of difficulty of like actually being able to put a price on that. The, the, the problem is in kind of pure economic terms, you've gone from this kind of physical ownership model where you actually, you it's a transaction. You buy a product. Like I know artists, uh, musicians, we're very displeased to have their music reduced to a crude term like product. But that's what it was. It was like you went to the shop, you bought your record, you hand over money, you owned it, you played it as many times as you wanted it, and it was yours to keep forever or for as long as you took care of it. And now the problem is that it's this kind of access-based model and you're kind of consuming within a subscription. So it's kind of all you all you can eat. So at certain weeks, you might be consuming absolutely everything. And then in other weeks, you might not. But so the working out the payments, the, the getting a kind of predictable economic model out of that, if you're an artist or a rights owner, is very, very difficult because it's not like you go, okay, here are my startup costs and here are my manufacturing and distribution and promotional costs. Okay, we need to sell a hundred thousand albums to break even. Everything after that's profit. Okay, we know where we are. So if you miss that target, you you understand how much you've missed it by, and that's fine. But with streaming, it's very, very abstract. It's kind of just this weird nebulous thing. You go, okay, it costs this to make it. Distribution is negligible. We still have to do a bit of marketing. And the payments change every week. So, like, there's no such thing as a, a kind of per stream rate. It depends on how much, if, you, if you're paying your $10 a month to Spotify or Apple Music, $3 of that goes to the service for running it, which I think is absolutely fair. Obviously, people, artists will go, we want more of that. But whatever, that's a 30% retailer margin was, would have been really good in the days of CDs. Like your Tower Records and Amoeba and everybody else was taking more than 30%, I would say, on, on, on certain records. So it's very, very hard to kind of predict based on the fact that your payment rates are changing on a kind of second-by-second second basis. But the problem is also within something like Spotify is that they don't do it on it's it's what they call a user-centric licensing model which is you pay pay for what you listen to whereas 
with something like Spotify, it's a bit abstract, but um, it's it's kind of some of the bigger winners on Spotify. So the Ed Sheerans and Drakes get a cut of your money, even if you didn't listen to them. It's, it's a way, it all goes into a pool and then it's all apportioned out based on the percentage of listening and stuff like that. And economically, that's an incredibly hard thing to get your head around. Just the, just the fact that there's no certainty. There's no certainty to what you're going to get paid. And I think what's so interesting about like your article is that kind of putting all these pieces together. So it's like, you know, you have the iPod disrupting a sort of bloated, high on their own supply, like record industry. and But then it goes back to the sort of like the emphasis on the single. But now, fast forward 20 years later, when we're in the era of like streaming, like you're giving like less opportunity for artists to actually like make more money because it, we're in like mm. now we're in this sort of playlistification streaming sort of culture which people don't really want to listen to albums it's like this weird it's been this like sort of like weird sort of narrative that's happened where you know the disruption was probably good but in the end it kind of comes back around and now it's kind of mm-hmm. made made it even more difficult and put us in this sort of Maybe, this sort of yeah. difficult situation which is like how do you yeah like the culture's there we're all stream all streaming but it's like how do you get how do you get artists paid and it's like i don't know like we're in the, we're almost like back to like square one where it's like okay now we're kind of stuck again well, maybe it's maybe it's a, a horrible thing to say, but maybe kind of artists getting paid from record sales is a weird historical quirk. It's an anomaly. It's like a, certainly you look at the deals. If we if we want to go back to that fifties model again, you look at the deals that all of those kind of early rock and roll stars did. Unless you were a massive one like Elvis. Well, Elvis. Well, Tom Parker took fifty percent of everything Elvis made. Anyway, but they were all getting paid off going here's a Cadillac and don't worry about royalties or stuff like that so there was that weird quirk maybe from the mid 60s to the mid 90s where uh, the album was the kind of the center of the of the world and people could get paid but like before that they didn't and after that they didn't so maybe rather than that being the norm that was the anomaly but like artists obviously don't want to hear stuff like that but when you when you start to take that long view of history you can start to say okay maybe that wasn't the way things were supposed to be maybe that was just a little kink in the system that allowed them to do that and maybe the thing with streaming is that and it's going to be very, very difficult for artists to to make a living. But that's not to say that there was ever a glorious time when artists could make a living, that it was suddenly, it was the kind of ambrosia of the gods that they were all dining on every day. Most artists have always struggled. It's like that. There's a there's a, a famous figure that's thrown around with record companies is that 90% of artists signed to a major record label don't make don't make money. So it's like it's a it's a business entirely predicated on failure, and this is the other thing that people forget about the record industry is that most of it is money just being thrown down a pit. So like, where where's where do you get profit then if you're the lucky ten percent? And you also have to remember how many artists get turned away by record companies. Obviously, they can kind of self release now, and that that's a whole other debate. But most artists have never made money, and Maybe this there was there was a period where they made a good bit of money and uh, and not from from the recorded side of things, and maybe it's is it just now going to have to unfortunately be treated as a as a weird kind of promotional thing that you do this to try and make money elsewhere and obviously that, that, at that, the benefit of the labels you got Universal like you know IPO at fifty five billion or yeah, whatever yeah. Like it was but like it like. But they they're obviously sitting on a huge catalogue of, of of kind of artists and, and they've and, and they've and they and they've got an enormous market share. So that's why you would you would expect you would God you would hope it would command huge prices like this. But unfortunately for lots and lots of artists, the 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 harsh reality is and has always been that you're never going to make a living out of doing this. And just because you create art, it doesn't follow that you should and will make a living out of it. And I know that I know that's going to discourage lots of artists because they need to have some kind of uh, of income. Maybe you think back to the Renaissance and the idea of patronage and stuff like that. But even like artists that we perceive to be hugely important never made any money. Or, or unfortunately, that's the default setting for artists is penury and. And it's 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 a, it's a rare view, maybe, and just it's the economics have changed, the technology has changed, and a handful of of people, maybe fewer artists, are scooping up more of the money now because of streaming. But the whole thing was, it was never this egalitarian 
world anyway. Yeah. It was a cruel, painful, horrible, underpaid world for artists. And it's just streaming's just laid that even more bare. I think people maybe get caught up in a romantic idea of the 60s and the 70s when, when I don't know, it was like the Beatles at Shea Stadium and... Sure. Fleetwood, Fleetwood Mike rumors selling 400 million copies every three seconds or something like that. And thinking that's it. That, that's, this is, this is what being in music is. And for most people, it's not, it's, it's, it's barely scraping by and it always has been. Unfortunately, there wasn't a golden area era for the record industry. There was a golden era for a handful of artists and maybe it's, uh, it's now one handful of artists it's a golden era for rather than two handfuls. Maybe that's all it is. It's just, uh, yeah. it's, I don't know. I I sound really, really pessimistic. No, no, no. This is something, no, this is something that we, we bring up a lot is that in, on the show is that there was no golden era. Basically. (laughs) It's like, it never was better. It's always been a struggle. But But, but but you you, you look at, you go back and read anything about when the CD was introduced about, Oh, this is terrible. Look at the terrible royalty rates we're getting. Go back to when the LP was introduced. It was musicians. It was like, um, radio as well, like the idea of using recorded music on radio was deemed as putting uh, live musicians out of work. For example, TV shows in the UK, like Top of the Pops, used to make artists re-record their songs to perform to mind to on TV because they thought this is stealing the musicians' union was against all of that. So there's always been resistance at every at every stage. There's always been an argument from the artists and the creators that they're getting a bad deal. So like it's 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 very ahistorical to to look at streaming and go, oh, it's worse. Uh, and it's like suddenly there was there was a better time. There was a utopia. It was always dystopian for musicians. And uh, yeah, and I think I think something we're trying to we've tried to do a, like is try to find test cases where maybe the expectation of like making a living, you know, in square scare quotes is like you know a lot less than people might expect. And trying to find situ like trying to find historically test cases in which bands were able to make a living mm. you know like sort of like outside the major labels or sort of like in tandem with the major labels and you know see how we could apply that today so obviously i'm thinking of like bands like fugazi or like early rem like when they're yeah. coming out of athens and like you know is this even feasible now because they were like making a living it's quote unquote but like you know is that even possible now yeah it's a real well, question well, they, they, yeah they were living pretty horrible grubby lives yeah, like, it wasn't even, great. like 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 you, like you, like rem's a really good example because they became the, one of the biggest bands in the world but i think probably up until document where they were probably just living out of the back of vans and sleeping on yeah on, i think on they all lived vans. in the same house in athens georgia yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they were they were five albums in and they were still scraping yeah. by Right, and right. and obviously they had they had at that stage they had IRS had uh, kind of belief in them to keep them going, and then they got to a point where Warners would go, okay, you can make that transition, and then they did Green, and then right. it kind of all exploded after that. But like lots of those artists, like were just not they were barely getting by. But then obviously it's kind of what kind of lifestyle do you have? I know, for example, I know uh, of some artists uh, who ha- were kind of cult artists, I'll, I'll not name them, but they had, they had one or two big hit singles, haven't done anything for about 20 years. And neither of them, it's two, it's a couple songwriters, uh, kind of the, the nucleus of the band, and they've not had to work a day since. And they, they live a very frugal life. They bought a house when they got an advance, and so they live mortgage-free. And just the kind of the radio royalties, the streaming royalties that come in, kind of pay for them. They're, they don't yeah. live, their overheads are incredibly low, but they they were kind of lucky at a point where they could buy property in London when it was reasonably cheap and live there and not yeah. have to kind of the indignity of kind of touring uh, yeah. two, 200 nights um, <laughs> every year. They don't have to do that, but they, but they, like they massively lowered their standard. They don't go. Yeah. And like, maybe that's the ideal. Maybe that's actually kind of what, what the expectations yeah. should be in reality. Yeah. I was thinking about like, we just, I just watched the the Sparks documentary and I know the big yeah. narrative around Sparks is like, Oh, the band that never got enough recognition that never really made it. And I'm like, well, I, I think that's kind of the ideal. I think they did quite well for themselves. They had like a house am, in the Hollywood I Hills. Am, like they like yeah, made money. I am, I, I am the biggest, biggest Sparks fan in the world. So I'm so delighted that they have finally, or got, the recognition that they deserve but they 
They, uh, I think, I, I know their manager, and I've interviewed uh, Ron and Russell a couple of times. I know they've they, they've they've made a bit of money, but they're 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 kind of still having to go project by project to keep stuff yeah. just stuff going. And there, was, and there was a few years where there, there was that point in the eighties where they were just they couldn't get arrested, and like it was all they just kept plugging away. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, before you go, I just want to note that you recently had a book come out that is very much up our alley. We we've covered uh, the recent slew of music catalogs being bought up by music investment funds like hypnosis and also the strange business of posthumous albums so uh you have a book that just came out called leaving the building the lucrative afterlife of music estates um can yes. you tell us a little bit about that book yeah well it, i think it's just come out in the states it came out a couple of months ago here so it's basically just looking at the the business of music estates how do they how do they run and it's kind of there's really only two things, as I say in the book, that estates have to do. They have to make money and they have to keep the artists relevant. Sometimes those two goals are compatible. Sometimes they're completely contradictory. So I, I just look, I went round and spoke to as many people who work with estates or run estates or on the periphery of estates. To just understand how the, the, the business has changed going all the way from I kind of early attempts of of kind of getting estates or estate market like robert johnson um otis radding for example sitting on the dock of the bay was the first posthumous number one single it was also completed after his death which is uh, a kind of interesting thing when you see things like uh posthumous albums coming out from i don't know just world or tupac or whoever that have been kind of completed after them this is something that dates back to the 1960s so it wasn't even like the beatles doing free as a bird and real love that wasn't that wasn't necessarily new so and then i look at all of the different components of the estate so looking at the will about why artists still make that terrible mistake of not leaving a will or not updating a will and the chaos and the family disputes that come from there talking about rights ownership rights reversion uh about the archive about how you kind of run an archive and how you mine that archive and how you kind of use it all the way through to kind of the the uses of new technologies from hologram tours to artificial intelligence to all of these things to basically just go how is it that artists have to compete in this world in this world of spotify and tiktok and instagram and everything else you have to market a dead artist in the exact same way that you would market taylor swift or Ed Sheeran, they have to be ever present. They have to be out there just working all the time. Because I just thought it's a fascinating part of the industry. People get a bit squeamish because they go, oh, it's about death. And we, like, we can't talk about death. Um, I was initially a bit squeamish when you go into it. You kind of go, oh, it's a bit awkward talking to people about death. And then you kind of become immune to it. And and so you, just, you, you realize that they have a duty. The best estates have this wonderful duty of care to artists. And it's all either maintaining their greatness. So you would see that with what the Elvis estate's done, what the Bob Marley estate's done. But it's also bringing obscure artists and given them a spotlight for the first time. So I spoke to the people who run the Nick Drake estate, and he was he sold like hardly any records in his lifetime, didn't sell anything for like 20, 30 years. Eva Cassidy, who died before she could get any kind of fame. And I remember I interviewed um, Mary Guibar, who is Jack Buckley's mum. And that was a really, that I think that kind of laid bare a lot of, what this is about because she's this is a, a woman who had to bury her son in his 20s which is just the most horrific thing for any parent to do and then she has to think about him every single day and she has to represent him every single day and she has to think about him on a commercial level and a cultural level every single day and you think about the psychological toll off that but she's driven by this thing about she doesn't want people to forget about her son he had a very brief career he had a very slim kind of discography but she's just driven there's this kind of kind of superhuman drive with her to go like oh, we need people need to hear his music and i want to pass his music down to generations and you see that particularly when it's family members who are running things as well it's it's a real kind of personal mission so like uh the people who run the Ramones estate or or whatever else they or Ian Jury or Polystyrene, these people who who were kind of cult artists but need to be part of the discourse. And one of the big things 
that, that came up in the book as well is that the kind of the legal issues around states can mean that artists risk being forgotten about. So, and the and the biggest example of that is James Brown, because his estate was there was lots of infight and people can read about it. it. It was possibly the most ugly, ugly dispute about heirs being. Uh, fights over who should get what and if he was technically married to his last wife and all of these things are only just got resolved but someone I know who who worked on the periphery of, of the James Brown business was just going basically what's happened is that uh, there was a pause on his career for 15 years and he wasn't being marketed in the same way that I noticed Radding was being marketed or uh, a Bob Marley or John Lennon was being marketed saying these people are important. These are the building blocks of modern music. And there's a risk about is a 15 year old going to conceive of James Brown in the same way that people of my generation or older conceive of James Brown yeah. as. Yeah. And it's, it also like leaves these gaps in history. We, we talked about it uh, obviously to a smaller uh, degree than James Brown, but Aaliyah not being like two of her albums not being yeah. on streaming it was yeah. like like well you have all these artists like Beyonce who are clearly influenced by her, but then like the people that are younger like 15, 16 year olds coming up listening to Beyonce can't go back and listen to Aaliyah who was like you know Beyonce's influence. It's like you have this gap in history all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah it's like people like if you're I'm guessing if you're kind of mid thirties and older she would have had an impact on your life at some point. You would have heard her her songs. You would have known who she is. But if you're 15, you're coming in and you're hearing all of this great music and you're just going like, okay, here's another artist who's, as you say, hugely important, like no Aaliyah, no Beyonce, no Rihanna, none of all of these artists. He was a hugely important. And again, like Jeff Buckley, she had a very short career. She was kind of famous young and then she died young. And... Like I think that that well they've they've started to put some of her stuff. Not all of her stuff is on streaming. No, yeah, they, they, well, so this is what's interesting is that they actually they just put her, like her other two albums back on streaming, like like last right, like, okay. like like this summer, you know. And then it kind of had but, this whole like new rollout and everything. But still, like you say, still speaking to your point, like you had this huge, I think like probably fifteen to twenty year gap, which was like due to like sort of a family issue because like she was on like her like uncle's label. Or uncle's like label, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and it just creates this whole, yeah, exactly. So there's like this whole generation of people who came up who weren't able to really access her music. I think I think unfortunately with something like her music now going on streaming services, it's kind of super serving people like us who knew about her and want to hear her music. But it's like their big challenge is going, okay, how what's the hook for there's an 11 year old kid in in Utah who's getting into music. How are they going to discover this person? How are they going to go? What wormhole do they have to go down to find out about Aaliyah and how important she was and how great she was? And they need to kind of um, find ways to do that. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's really hard. So I, I kind of. But like, if you stop, it's like that old cliche of the of the shark. If you stop moving, then you die. And it's almost like if an estate stops moving, the artist dies again. Which is like, and that that's the worst thing. If we're talking about kind of cultural desecration, that's the worst thing to allow somebody great to slip out of the public consciousness. Is it's like it's it's just unforgivable in my in my book well I'm, I'm sure that like sam and i will be reading it because it's definitely like right up our alley and maybe we can uh, have you on at a later date to talk more about it um uh, but uh Eamon ford uh writer author thanks for coming on the show to talk about this and we hope to have you on again soon very happy to thank you